week we began a new sermon series, which is going to take us through early November. It is based on a verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Titus. The context for the book of Titus is that Paul and Timothy had planted some churches on the island of Crete. Paul had then been called to go and work at the church in some other parts of the world, and he left Titus behind on the island of Crete. And his introductory message to Titus and the letter that he wrote to him was, we understand that you're a people of promise and you're also a people of reality, and we understand that sometimes we feel close to the Lord, sometimes we feel distant from the Lord, but the bottom line is, is that we're supposed to be maturing in our relationship with the Lord. And then he says this in chapter 1, verse 5, I left you on the island of Crete to finish what was left undone. He says, Timothy, uh, Titus, it is time now for you to end the beginning. We started the church together. The churches are meeting together regularly. But now it is time for you to end the beginning phase of these church plants and to help them move towards maturity. And so this morning we're going to pick up the text in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, 1 Timothy, 1 Titus rather, chapter 1, beginning the second part of verse 5, as Paul gives Titus specific instructions for what it means at that time for the church to end their beginning and to move to the next phase. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, please join me in Titus chapter 1. The words will also be on the screen. Paul writes to, to Titus, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. For the churches in Crete at that time, the way that they needed to finish what was undone, to end the beginning, was that he asked Titus, you need to go and find pastors and call them to the work of the ministry to consistently lead and teach the churches that we have planted. And so throughout this series, we're going to be talking about what the practical application was at the time when this book was written. And then we'll be talking about what I feel I hear the Lord telling us concerning River Church. And then, of course, as we move into a time of communion, a personal practical application as well. So Paul continues with Titus, and he says, I need you to appoint elders in every town. A lot of times when we think about pastors, uh, and we wonder, like, where do these guys come from? And what makes a person, like, what's wrong with them that they decide that they don't want to have an actual job and be a pastor instead? Because what on earth do pastors do anyways? I can only speak from my own experience, and that was I was minding my own business. <laughs> I wasn't trying to bother anybody, and yet I heard the Lord specifically call me to be a pastor in a local ministry. And, and well, gosh, how did that happen? That sounds kind of weird. You know, was it in prayer? Was it? No, the phone rang, and my pastor offered me an invitation to come and join him in ministry. And I said the only thing that is a, a rational person would say when being in, invited or appointed to be a pastor of a local church, I said no, not at all. Thanks anyways. I'm humbled that you would consider me. And I went back to being a normal person because that's just normal. Like, normal people don't aspire, I don't think, to be pastors. They have to be appointed. And this appointment has to be received. And the only way that you would ever receive this appointment is if you actually felt that you heard from the Lord. And I know for me, after I said no, there then 
I couldn't stop thinking about the opportunity that was offered to me. Never in my life had I wanted to be a pastor. I thought pastors were kind of useless. If you're going to work and serve the Lord, why don't you do it in a practical way where you can actually tell that you accomplished something that day? And hence my time as a missionary pilot. So many towns were moved. So many people were moved. So many people didn't die. So many aircraft were maintained. It was very practical. Like, why would a rational person seek to serve the Lord in any other way? Who really wants to talk to people about their feelings, not me? And that was kind of my view of pastors. Until I was offered an opportunity to be one, which I rejected. But then the Lord began to do something in my mind and began to teach me and to help me understand that my understanding of what a pastor is and the opportunity available to people who are pastors uh, was way beyond my immature understanding of what a pastor was. And so over the next few months, I, I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I kept push-ups to all hours of the night talking about this opportunity. And I realized that God was calling me, that I had been appointed, and that I needed to confirm that call through my own times of prayer because this is what it began to feel like. It began to feel like to me that if I did not sacrificially serve the local congregation that I was a part of at that time, that for me, I would be flirting with sin. That's a compulsion that I felt like. That if I just kept my normal job, that if I just kept worrying about providing for my family and being the world's best church volunteer, which is what I was or was seeking to be, that if I did not respond to my pastor's call to join him as a pastor on staff, that for me, it would be like I was sinning. That I understood that I was being called to self-sacrificially serve, to love, and to mentor, and to train, and to teach people that I deeply cared about. And that if I didn't do it, it's possible that I would be judged for being disobedient. That's how clear God made it to me. To summarize it, to think about it in another way, with just a one-word summary, after months of praying and thinking about the opportunity that I had to join my pastor in the ministry, at the time I did not have a Master of Divinity, I did not have any grad school training, uh, I, I had served as a missionary pilot, and I had two years of Bible school, but I did not feel qualified in any way, shape, or form, but I felt compelled. The one-word summary was, I began to feel jealous. That if for whatever reason I rejected the call or did not confirm the appointment or let it pass to another candidate who was maybe better trained or more qualified, that I would be jealous for that opportunity. That I would be jealous to be having those conversations of faith with that church that I love. That was, that was how I felt. That no way could I let another guy have this opportunity because it was for me. That God had changed my heart. And regardless of my own sense of insecurities and, and lack of preparedness, that I couldn't do enough, I couldn't give enough, I couldn't be enough, I couldn't try hard enough to fulfill this call, this compulsion in my life. That's what it felt like. And if you're wondering, you know, there might be people wondering, Eric, am I called to ministry? Am I called to be a pastor? I would encourage you to think deeply about this verse. It is an appointment. If you feel that you're being called to lead God's church as a pastor, there's a good chance that someone is asking you and appointing you to step it up. If nobody's asking you or appointing you or challenging you to step it up, then I have to, from my own experience, I kind of have to wonder, like, maybe you're not called to serve as a pastor. It's that strong of a compulsion, and over time, it becomes that clear. 
I love this verse. It's a verse that would be easy to skip over. But please understand that it was Titus's job to appoint men to be pastors. These guys weren't asking for anything. It was Titus's job to go and call something out in their lives and for them to wrestle with the fact that they had then been called. That they would look back on Titus's invitation as if they had heard from the voice of God. Because I know in my own experience, that's how I felt. And so Titus then went out and began to appoint elders or pastors in every town. One who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. For an overseer, a pastor, as God's administrator, must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Who would dare say, oh yeah, that, that sounds like me. Holy, blameless, not addicted to wine, I'm not a bully, basically because of my size, not because of my intent. If I actually had more muscles, I probably would be a bully, but I would just get pounded if I tried to bully anybody. So, I mean, who on earth would say, yeah, that's totally me, like that's obviously me, I'm definitely the guy, I'm supposed to be a pastor. Nobody would say that, you're appointed. Somebody has called you to that, specifically God. And usually it's another local leader. Usually it's another pastor who has observed your ministry and has observed your life and then put the call on you to come and join them or to start something. And so, again, not only does this call come from the outside, from God, through usually another pastor, it also has to be accepted. And that is the only reason with great fear and trembling that anybody would offer themselves as a pastor, understanding this list of qualifications. I know I just read through it quickly, but in my times of studying for pastors, I couldn't help but notice that one uh, qualification is repeated twice. Did anybody notice it? It, it? it'd be really amazing if you did, because I did read, I did read it really quick. One of the qualifications is listed twice. And if you look at the qualifications, you can kind of break down the qualifications as personal qualifications or family qualifications or qualifications of personal moral integrity, and then qualifications that are more publicly visible and outside or workplace qualifications. But you'll see that when the text is broken down that way, the overall qualification is that whether it is in our private lives or in our public lives, that a pastor is blameless. Huh. What on earth does that mean? Because who is blameless? And what does that even mean? Well, that's why Paul goes on to describe with these words what it means from a New Testament perspective to be blameless, because nobody in their right mind would, oh yeah, okay, I need a blameless person to be in charge of the thing. Oh, perfect, I'm a blameless person. Like, who is that guy? You need to have your head examined. Like, if you actually volunteer for that, you're obviously not the guy. This is why the New Testament says you're appointed. Ooh, pick me, pick me, pick me. I'm blameless. I'm a great leader of all the things. Yeah, how about you go find a bucket and you get, you know, do something with the bucket? Because obviously you're not the guy. It's a call to sacrificially care for church. This is a compelling call in a blameless way. Blameless bottom line, just a quick summary, it means that should a pastor be accused of something, it doesn't stick. 
that the initial reaction to whatever the accusation is, is no, that's just hoo-ha. That's not the pastor. You obviously don't know him. You obviously haven't talked to him. Like, obviously, there's some sort of a misunderstanding. This is why the New Testament says is that if you do have an accusation against a pastor, because pastors are not blameless, there better be two or three of you together who have their facts straight. Because one person in the New Testament church does not have the privilege of bringing an accusation against a pastor. Pastors are not Brett Kavanaugh. There is no he said, she said in the world of the New Testament. If a pastor is not blameless, then two or three people from the church have to be together, and they better have their facts straight before an accusation is made against a pastor of a church. If one person comes against a pastor and says you're not blameless and you did the thing, the pastor has every right to say I will not even entertain or defend myself at all. That is the New Testament model. If it's a he said, she said, the pastor says, Let's, you, know, you better go find two or three more people to confirm what you're saying because I am appointed by God. And the assumption is, is that I am living my life in a blameless fashion. That if one person accuses a pastor of something, that the church at large would recognize it as being spurious. Unless it's not. And then two or three people can then take action against a pastor of a church. It's a very serious deal. One who is blameless in their personal life. A one-woman man is what the Greek text actually says. A husband of one wife. There are a number of different ways that you can interpret that passage. But in our culture and in our passage, for the most part, it means he's a one-woman man. That he is faithful to his wife in every sense of the term. Personally, the way that I stand against any accusation against sexual impropriety is that I have never underscore, underlined, nor will I ever meet with a woman alone in a closed door setting. If ever accused of sexual impropriety, it's very simple. It didn't happen. I'll only meet with women with a third party present or in a very public place. If a woman comes to the trailer during the week, I don't let her in or I step outside. It's just that simple. There's a reason there is video surveillance in that parking lot. I will not talk to a woman without video surveillance outside in public. Bottom line. Is the way I've lived my life since the first time I was asked to be a pastor back in the early 20s. And that is just the way it is. If anyone ever accuses me of sexual impropriety with a woman, you better have your facts straight because I can pretty much prove you it never I'm a one woman man. Well, Josh, I saw you kiss an older woman at church. That's my mom. That's the beauty. She gets a kiss on the cheek. That's it. I'm a one-woman man and my mom. So that's good. Uh, a one-woman man uh, having faithful children. Um, there's not much I can say about that when people together. I have good boys. They're good kids. They're not perfect, but they're good boys. And I haven't seen Ezra since Thursday morning, and I think he grew over the weekend. You know, So I know that having children is a work in progress and that our children change, but I, you know... Faithful children is an important. I have my stuff together at home. Pastors have to have their stuff together at home. Personal, you remember during the Bill Clinton era where you say, well, it doesn't matter what he's like in his personal life as long as he's a good president. That's hoo-ha. That is not what the Bible says at all about being a pastor. If a pastor doesn't have his stuff together at home, he has no business being the manager or overseer of a local church. And Paul's letter to Timothy makes that clear, that if a man does not have his stuff together at home, then do not appoint that guy to be a pastor. Because if he can't lead his house well, how is he supposed to lead the household of God? 
because the two have children who, for the most part, are something less than terrible, not wild or in rebellion. Uh, and then it goes on to say, so those are the internal or the private qualifications of a pastor. These are the kinds of men that you're looking for, Titus. And he goes on for an overseer as God's administrator must be blameless. He repeats again. And then he says the public stuff, the, the, the stuff that is out, in, obviously, in public. He's not arrogant, hot-tempered, addicted to wine. He's, he's not a bully, uh, a greedy for money, a hospitable, loving. So there's some negative qualifications that we're looking for that we don't want to see in the pastor, and then some positive ones. And you can see what they are, and they're self-controlled. Uh, so that, again, uh, the passage where Paul talks about what it takes to be a pastor in Timothy, he says that a pastor must have a good reputation in the community. That when you say, oh, what church do you go to? Oh, I go to such and such church. Well, who's the pastor there? Oh, it's so, so-and-so. That they're not snickering. That you're not embarrassed to say who your pastor is. That he has a halfway decent reputation in the community. This is what Paul is saying to Titus. So it's a confirmed call, of, according to the second half of, of verse 5 of chapter 1, that a pastor is a man of integrity inside his personal life as well as outside of his personal life. That he's basically, and again, it sounds like too good of a word to apply to anybody, but he's blameless in that if there was to be a single accusation made against someone who's a pastor, that it's laughable. That it just doesn't fit. That it's, it's just not that guy at all. And then in verse 9, what is the pastor's job? Holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Titus, you have got to get some pastors in your local churches. It needs to end the beginning of not having clear leadership because there is a teaching that leads to salvation and there is a teaching that leads to hell. And we've got to have a man of God up there to make this clear. This is essential to these new churches. They have to. We got off to a good start, and right now it's kind of more like a small group where different people are presenting from what they've learned in God's Word, and that's great, but there has to be a consistent voice for truth. This is good and safe. This is wrong and dangerous. Do this. Don't do that. And it has to come from a guy that we can actually believe, like he's telling the truth. He has to be credible. Titus, this has to happen. If you will, it's kind of like we know what lighthouses do. Lighthouses provide a bearing towards safety, but they also point out areas that if you go in that direction, you will experience a shipwreck. I don't think a pastor is the keeper of the lighthouse. I'll talk about that in a minute. I think the pastor is the lens. We know that the light, that the power of the lighthouse is probably not a bad reflection of who God is through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That that is our goal. That God's word, God's truth illuminates the dangerous things in life and illuminates the safe things in life and makes it clear which way we should go. But it's applied into a local church. It's applied to an individual bay or part of the sea through a lens. It gets practical. It gets personal. It becomes relational. God's word becomes real as the man of God who is in love and has been called to serve a particular group of people is a lens. And you better make sure that lens doesn't have many scratches on it. it because whatever light passes through the lens of the pastor is kind of filtered by that same personality, by that same character, by that same training, by that same calling. And so as much as possible, that lens needs to be pure. That lens needs to be blameless on the inside and the out. And that's why it's an appointment. Because who volunteers to be that kind of person where, yes, 
watch as God's word shines through my life onto you. Like, who is that guy? Like, that's disgusting. Nobody wants to be that guy. Nobody wants to follow that guy. That's wrong. That guy's a goofball. But it is something that God calls and then burdens somebody with, and they then humble themselves to, understanding that I now have a jealousy to be that guy. I can't let anyone else love these people because I feel like God has gifted me to love these people in a particular way. A pastor is like the lens of a lighthouse. This is dangerous. Stay away from it. And he says it in love, of being a man of morality inside and out. This is safe. Follow this way. Teach your children this way. This is the power of God's word for us. And you can trust him because you'll see it exemplified both privately and publicly. Not perfectly in that person's life. Danger and safety. That's the pastor's job. It's time to end the beginning, Timothy. You need those guys in those churches because there's a lot of baloney going on out in the culture at the time. Uh, and he goes on to describe it later on. We'll take a look at it. But the bottom line is pastors protect the local church by guiding them uh, through safe paths of, of God's teaching and warning them about dangerous ways and sinful, sinful behavior. Well, what is Jesus saying in light of this passage directly to River Church? What do I feel as the pastor... Jesus is saying to us at this time, coming up on our fourth birthday, we talked about last week how it's time to end the beginning of River Church. We've taken all of our baby pictures. We're not taking any more baby pictures here. We're taking different pictures now as we're moving from a time of uh, beginning into a time of more stabilized ministry. The specific step, the specific call of leadership that I feel we're at here at River Church since we launched with a pastor with a clear and compelling call from God, is that one of our core elements, uh, the first core element that I talked about a little bit last week as we're talking about more in the future, is evangelism and outreach. It is one of our critical parts of our DNA. It is the first thing we did as River Church, and I hope it's the last thing we do, and everything in between is focused on evangelism and outreach. We have eight families signed up for the Bible schools tomorrow, which is, again, my attempt at leveraging three knots that I know for the gospel of Jesus. Only one of those families I know personally. The rest of them I don't know. Maybe they go to church, maybe they don't. But we're going to be sharing the gospel in this revival schools context tomorrow. Evangelism and outreach. It's not something I'm asking you to do. It's something I'm asking you to join me with. It is part of our core DNA. We must always be sharing the gospel with those who have not heard that we must share our love for God with the love for our community. Second, that happens very quickly is volunteer leadership stepped up. They saw how there was a desperate need where, you know, those of us who were here at the very beginning were doing all the things. And some very good questions were asked by these wonderful people, which is, why are they doing all the things? Why can't I help in a certain way and take over certain aspects of ministry? And the answer is, by all means, if you see a need, it's probably something that God has equipped you to meet, so please. And so we have the gardeners who are in charge of the facilities and the hospitality team. We have Vince, who took over, and Heather, the worship team from my wife. Uh, we have Will, who took over the sight and sound team from my son, Benaya. We have uh, River Kids, which Kevin and Jen started, which is now being led by Tyler and Audrey and Luncheon. We have Claire Shopping from day one, who has been helping me with the bookkeeping and accounting and finances. Uh, and so I have a team of about 15 to 20 people who have been leaders for years now, faithfully. What is the practical application, the core part of our DNA, according to this text here at River Church? It's volunteer leaders. The need for, the training of, the love for, the appreciation of, 
and following well people who too have been called of God in response to a desperate need and have met it in a consistent and dependable way. These people, the ones that we follow, the team leaders that we ask you to join these teams, uh, Jeremy is now leading a small group effort. These people are on their way, and they may not even know this, towards becoming appointed as deacons of the church. Now, deacons are not addressed in this passage, but the actual practical application of where we're at within the church is we are heading that way. As we have our fourth birthday and move to our fifth, these families, these individuals, these men, these women have been faithful in their service, and they too meet the same qualifications as I do as a pastor, save one exception. They're not called to teach publicly. They're not the lens of the life. They are the life keepers. They are the ones who are helping me see that God's word is practically applied in a personal way week by week as God blesses me with vision and direction and preaching for the church, it is my volunteer ministry leaders who all in their own right as of today, in my opinion, are qualified to be deacons of the church. We just haven't voted them in officially. We just haven't officially recognized them as such. And, and that is because deacons have to serve faithfully for a period of time and have to be recognized as such by the local church. And I'm telling you right now, sometime in this year or so, we'll probably be calling for a vote which will be this. Can we simply recognize that God has called certain men and women to partner with me in ministry, and they're the lighthouse keepers. They're the ones that are actually accomplishing and coordinating the work of the ministry as I focus on prayer and teaching and evangelism. And, and, and that's what's going to happen. So it's not addressed in this passage, but the actual practical application for us here at River Church, what I hear Jesus saying to us as I study through this text and this idea of ending the beginning is that the day is coming where we will have deacons and deaconesses, and they are it won't be a surprise who they are, you know, because they have been faithful and qualified uh, with the same qualifications as a pastor, with the one exception being the public proclamation and teaching of God's word. Have you guys ever heard that before? Is that new for some of you, or just recent expression you guys have known? Do you see where... Uh, how that's important for us as a church at some point to have official people wonder like who are the leaders of the church I get it you're the pastor but where is this going it's the hopefully that's an encouragement to you and, and you can simply pray in the time remaining about how God would continue to bless us with leaders of the church starting out as volunteers but then moving into a physically recognized position as deacons again it's not in this passage uh, but it is a clear teaching in the New Testament that as the church grows it's time to end the time it's time to call these people for what they actually are. Qualified and called of God and recognized by me and effective in the means that they serve in. And so let's call them what they are. Let's give them biblical respect. Let's steward them and let's serve well under their own leadership. We're going to move through a time of communion as I wrap up our time together this morning. And the final question this morning is, what is Jesus saying to us as moms and as dads, as men and women of faith, as children, as sons and daughters? And here is here is what God is saying to us, I feel, as his Christ followers, as Christ followers, as his people. This morning's theme is about the imperativeness of leadership, that a local church has to have a pastor. These are the qualifications. I made the application for the church that a local church needs to have deacons and deaconesses, those who serve well under the pastor's uh, heart for the church and vision. And then finally, for personal application, 
to live and lead ourselves well. That when it comes to our own matter of faith and our own heart before the Lord, that it's time to end the beginning of being driven left and to the right by either uh, personality conflicts or not understanding what the Bible says about some core essential truth or not being regularly involved in a ministry in a local church or not contributing financially at all to our local church or doing it in a hindrancy way, that in these various areas of our lives, the challenge, according to the text this morning, is that it's time to end the beginning of leading ourselves. It's time to actually lead ourselves. That each of us probably has an area of our life where we know that it is time for us to commit ourselves to faithful service of the Lord. And, and maybe it's recommitting ourselves to our spouses. Maybe it's recommitting ourselves to finding a better means of providing for our families. Maybe it's recommitting ourselves to find a way of serving the church. Or however the Lord would speak to you. But there is a clear gospel application Father, thank you for this opportunity to lead ourselves well. Father, it is our desire to partake of what you have provided for us. We are not capable of forgiving our own sins. We're not capable of fixing our own messes. We're not capable of healing broken areas in our life. But we place our faith in you and specifically through the kind provision of your son. And we say, Amen. Take the bread and we'll take the juice. We'll confess of what we know to be wrong and recommit ourselves to you, knowing that as we take this step of obedience, that your heart will be pleased and you will look on us and say, That is a group of people who are being led well and who are leading themselves well. I can trust them. 